0: Show number sixteen of I Read Comics. Yep, still podcasting. Hey, kids, back is back. I was on vacation. I decided to come back. So I have so much stuff to talk about. New stuff, old stuff, stuff I read on vacation, other things. This time I'm going to talk about some books and um, a couple comics and then a movie at the end of the show. The first thing I wanted to discuss was the book that many of you probably know about already. Of course, me being late to the game and reading and seeing everything years after it's already happened. This book is Gerard Jones' book, Men of Tomorrow, Geeks, Gangsters, and the Birth of the Comics. Um... I've heard about this book for a long time, and I finally decided to, guess what, check it out of the library, and they had it. I got the hardback edition. Now, it's important to know that this book came out in 2004. There has been uh, a softcover edition that came out this year in 2005, which has extra material added to it and some errors corrected from the previous hardcover printing. So if you're going to buy it, get the paperback edition, which you can get online really cheap. Um, Amazon has it for like 10 bucks, but don't buy it at Amazon. Go somewhere else. I will probably end up getting the paperback edition. It's a really interesting book. It's If you don't know about it very quickly, it's a history of the very earliest days of comics, specifically focusing on Siegel and Schuster who created Superman and what the environment was for them to be able to create it and why comics were so important at that time. It follows golden age of comics, pretty much up through the silver age, but then follows the Siegel and Schuster tale a little bit more, but doesn't give, it's not supposed to be a complete and utter history of comics everywhere. It's great. It's really informative. I learned lots and lots of stuff that I didn't know otherwise. The only thing I could say in criticism of it is that the author, Gerard Jones, has deliberately written it in a rather breathless style, which I think is in emulation of the way comics used to be where every issue or, or every chapter I suppose had to end with a cliffhanger. And in fact, he ends every chapter with a cliffhanger with a something like, and he never thought that this would ever happen, but soon he was to find out that fate had something else in store for him. And you know, it's, fun, but it gets a little wearing after a while, and I could pretty much only read a chapter at a time, and then I'd have to put it away. It has a ton of information in it, like names, dates, places, which was also a little much for me to assimilate all at once. So it was a good book to read over the course of like two weeks, and I think if you're going to try to read it, you should probably attempt it like that. But don't wait a long time before you get to the end, because then you'll have forgotten who all these people are, and names, and places, and stuff. But I thought it was really good. One of the things that really, really struck me about it was um, how he goes into a lot of history of where fandom came from, geek fandom, and traces its origins to science fiction fandom, which was happening in this country in the early 20s when um, Hugo Gernsback's Amazing Stories was published and other science fiction magazines sprang up at that time, and fandom grew around it, and the earliest fans would publish letters, or they would write letters which would then be published in the magazines, and it would include their addresses so they could then correspond to each other, and that's pretty much where fandom got its start, which continues to this very day. Gee, built around science fiction, who would have guessed? What I really liked about him, though, um, in his in Jones' typical sort of, um, I don't want to say overdone style, but he tends to hammer the point home in more ways than one, um, is his characterization of the fans at that time. So I actually went through one of the chapters and I pulled some quotes. Um, this is not stuff taken out of context, but I just pulled what I thought were the best sentences and kind of put them together in his sketch of what fandom was like at that time. And when you're listening to this, think about whether it still holds true today. So these are pages uh, 34 to 37 of the hardcover edition. And through fandom, there was now a community, others to encourage keeping one's core in that other world, even when school or work demanded the presence of one's outer self. It was a generation of misfits who were given a choice other than the complete withdrawal from the world or indentured service to it. Once in the subculture, the boys fine-tuned one another's identities around the self-definition science fiction fan, an indifference to clothes and appearance, a manic but unsentimental bonhomie in their meetings, an amused disdain for the drones who didn't understand them. In their correspondence, they strutted with florid self-advertisement masked as self-parody, held on to each other with in-jokes and acerbic wit, like fifth-graders with collegiate vocabularies. They craved clearly marked territories. They argued endlessly, obsessively, about whether science fiction must be based on proven concepts or could stray into speculation. They labeled and listed and ranked and included and excluded and collected with, and with passionate exactitude, such hyper-rational ordering being the most entertaining way to keep the disorder of life and emotion in check. So when I talk about alpha monkeys, that's pretty much who I'm describing. And I would say that that description goes for any kind of fandom where people are really, really passionate and obsessive about it. Star Trek being the premier example, you know, in that sketch on Saturday Night Live, when William Shatner was telling everybody to get a life, those parodies of the people who were listening to him, that was those people right there. Um I posted this on the the blog, the ireadcomics.blogspot.com place, and um, my friend Israel from Barcelona wrote and had a few comments, and I wanted to read what he said, because I thought this was kind of interesting. He says, I think maybe from the 70s or 80s, a new kind of geek has appeared. It's what I call a semi-geek. I like that, semi-geek. He says, a semi-geek is the fanboy that likes everything a fanboy likes, but doesn't like the social aspect of being a fanboy. Thus, he doesn't let himself become a total comic geek, but just a semi-geek. Um, And he goes on to make some distinctions about it and says, if you're a semi-geek, you have to be able to uh, talk about other topics than comics and movies and stuff like that, Um, waste time taking care of how he looks, time that could be spent reading comics or watching a movie, and um, has to accept that a lot of people will never appreciate the art of comic books and be able not to feel anger towards them, which I thought was really good. So Israel thinks that there's a lot of people who call themselves geek today are actually semi-geeks fanboy-born guys that have evolved toward integration into mainstream society without leaving their liking for comics and subculture. He says, it's hard but necessary. And and I think that's true, and part of it, and Jones makes this point in the book, is that geek culture is, isn't even really a subculture anymore. Liking comic books, liking movies about comic books, liking science fiction is something that everybody does now. I, I would say that it's very much accepted. It's part of being An interesting person or maybe a quirky person. And people who might never have picked up a Spider-Man comic book will go see Spider-Man the movie because it's a really cool movie and they like it. And so therefore geekdom has been brought to them. Of course, there is still the subculture of people who are really hardcore and obsessive. And I think that would be the true geek who hasn't changed much since the 1920s. Um, And of course, you know, there's a place for that for people who, as as Joan says, who are faced with a choice between completely withdrawing from a world that they don't belong in because they just don't fit in or spending their lives kind of in self-loathing and resentment. The subculture of geekery just provides a place for them to be themselves and to make friends. And the internet has helped that tremendously. So I'm I'm really glad that the internet is there. Of course, there are the downsides to it. Um, there's the social isolation and lack of living in the real world, I guess, because sometimes it is okay to live in the real world, um, or at least to be in touch with the real world. And, you know, sometimes you just got to know what's going on. And I guess for people who choose to really live the hardcore geek life, they don't have, they, they kind of give up the right to complain about the rest of the world not accepting them. Um, and, and it's really irritating when that happens, when people who are so immersed in their subculture then rant about how people don't understand them or they can't get a date or why do people think they're so weird? Well, it's because you are weird. (laughs) though I didn't mean this to turn into a whole rant, but I just think it's, it's interesting that um this type of subculture has continued, and there are now many variations of it, and yet the hardcore geeks remain. So um, I'd love to hear what other people have to say about this sort of stuff. Um, I have an, a rant prepared about something else, but I think I'll get to it in the next show. It's not specifically about geeks, but it's about some habits that geeks have. So having said enough about Gerard Jones and his wonderful book, I think we will now take a brief musical interlude from that wonderful composing diva, Ginger Mayerson. And then I'm going to come back and talk briefly because I have a whole bunch of new things that I want to go through really quickly. Um, And then I'm going to talk about the movie at the end of the show. When I have spare time, which isn't very often, especially now, but when I do have spare time, I like to do things that contribute to the greater good. And one of the things that I just finished doing, which I'm going to do again, was to volunteer some of my time and my voice to read part of an audio book there is an organization called LibriVox, which is located at LibriVox.org, and they are dedicated to taking public domain books, that is books and other works for which the uh, copyright has expired, and having people volunteer to read chapters of it. They then post it up at their site so that people can download it either as an mp3 file or as an og file, which is a different type of encoding um, to make the files a bit smaller, so that people can hear audiobooks for free. And everything that's in the public domain right now are what people tend to think of as classic literature. So the Oz books, for example, um, a lot of Mark Twain, things like that. And I think this is just a wonderful, wonderful thing, because so many people are now discovering that it's great when you have an iPod to listen to a book as well as listen to a podcast or music. So I thought I was actually invited to do this, and once I found out about it, I thought, whoa, what a great idea. So my contribution was to read uh, three chapters of uh, Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth, which in the translation that we were working with is called Journey to the Interior of the Earth, which was kind of funny. And I think my chapters were 36 to 38, and I sent them in. It hasn't been posted yet. I think the project was supposed to end on December 20th, but it should be posted sometime, I guess, in the beginning of the new year. So you can hear me reading that. I would encourage anybody. Who- who is podcasting right now or who would like to be part of this, go to LibriVox.org and volunteer. There's always a ton of stuff that they need volunteers to read. Um, you can skim through and maybe you can pick something that you never read before or something that's really near and dear to your heart. But it's a, it's a wonderful cause and I would definitely um, encourage you to do it if you've got the gear. And you know, really the gear is like a microphone and a piece of software, free software that you can record your voice with and make it into an MP3 file. And I will be doing more of those, so when I finish my next um, batch of chapters, I will let you guys know in case you would like to go over there and hear it. And now I have several quick things that I want to talk about, because I actually want to get this podcast done and out there so that people don't think I've died. So um, let me put my stuff in a pile, and I will go through it one by one, and you'll see that I have actually been reading a lot of stuff. Okay, top of the pile. And the reason I'm talking about this is because I know that you all think that anything that's like gay porn related, I just fall in love with. And I want you to know that that's not true. And it's not true about Yaoi either. So when we were at Yaoi Con, um, we got a bag of stuff to take home with us. And one of the things in the bag were some comics. And these are new comics published by a press called Sin Factory. And these are both issue number one of, I guess, new anthologies. One of them is called Dangerous, and one of them is called Sexual Espionage. And as far as I can tell, these are not done by actual Japanese people. These are done by American people who are imitating the Japanese manga-slash-yaoi style. And um, my my comment about these is that I don't like them, and they're not good. <laughs> they have sex in them, but the sex is not very good Um The art is not very good, and it's just not very interesting. The cover on Dangerous is way more interesting than the stuff that's inside, with one exception. I will say there is one story in here that I kind of liked, which is called Unmentionables. And um, even though it's a gay sex story, it's about one guy who's wearing his girlfriend's underwear. Um, And things kind of take off from there. So that's kind of nice. But, you know, in common with a lot of comic book sex, you know, guys are having butt sex, and there's no lube, and there's no prep, and there's no nothing. Like, okay, it's fantasy, whatever. Um, there's one in here that's just really bad that has these extremely stylized drawings in them, which are creepy. They're just plain creepy, and it's one of those angsty kind of... Um, When you're a teenager, this is the way you think high drama should be, but it's really melodrama because you're, you know, 15 and you don't know any better. So I have to say, I did not like these two comic books, and I'm going to sell them on eBay with a bunch of other YowieCon stuff. So if anybody wants them, go look for that on eBay. Okay, that was issue number one. Number two on the list is from your friendly neighborhood library. They had a collection in the graphic novel section called Ultimate Spider-Man Power and Responsibility. So this collection came out in 2002. Again, I'm getting to it much later than everybody else. And this is the first thing by Bendis that I've read that was his mainstream comics work, aside from, you know, what I've talked about before with Torso. Um, So it took me a really long time, a couple of years ago, to figure out what the whole Ultimate thing was about. And I get it, but I don't really understand it. And in reading through this, you know, it's interesting Unfortunately for me, it doesn't bring anything new to the story. I read it and I go, "Yeah, that's Peter Parker. Yeah, that's what happens." I, you know, I see that there are there's another plot going on here with Osborne and things that are happening, but I didn't feel like the characters or the situation spoke to me any more deeply or more relevantly than the comics that came out that Stan Lee and and Steve Ditko were doing way back when. So I, I can see what the attempt is. I have to say, for me, it didn't succeed. And maybe for a younger audience, it is a more successful kind of thing. Um, and they can relate better to it, and the characters are more real. Because, you know, you read the stuff that was done back in 64, 65, and it seems kind of hokey. Um, but it just it didn't thrill me, I have to say. And, you know, the art is very much in today's comic book style. Um, I don't quite get why Peter Parker is in his underwear quite so much uh, seems a little gay to me. I don't know. That kind of made me laugh. So if anybody has more comments about this particular instantiation of Spider-Man, pass it along. I'd like to know what other people think about it. But you know, I wasn't disappointed. It was interesting. And boy, it sure is colorful. You know, there's a lot of nice color in it. Um, but it didn't move me. It did not move me in the way that those original comics do. Maybe I'm just too old to appreciate it. I don't Item number three in the pile. These were um, comics that were loaned to me by my good geek friend Logan to take on vacation. And I read them. And I'm not quite sure what to say about this. So um, what he loaned to me were issues of Astonishing X-Men and then the trade that collects one through whatever it is. Uh, I would actually have to look in the front. One through six. So this is Astonishing X-Men one through six. And then I have issues... uh, seven, sorry, nine, 10, and 11. So I'm kind of caught up. I know that there have been issues that came out after this. And this was interesting for me on a couple of levels. One is because I haven't read any X-Men in a long time. I mean, a really, really, really long time. So I understand the setting. I did a little bit of research online to make sure I understood what the hell was going on in X-Men land. And I thought these were really interesting comic books. Um, good setup interesting art um the dialogue's pretty witty you know it's Joss Whedon so yeah the dialogue's going to be pretty good and the plot's going to be pretty interesting too that was mainly why Logan thought I'd be interested in reading these because I like Joss um the the issue about mutants being able to be cured you know it's been raised so many times in the X-Men universe and here it's raised again um So I I thought it was good, and of course, you know, somebody gets resurrected, as always happens, because nobody ever dies in the comic book world. That was kind of funny. I like the uniforms. Um, Interesting version of Nick Fury. I hadn't, like I said, not having read these kind of comics for a long time, I wasn't sure how he was going to be portrayed, and he's pretty different from the way I remember him being way back when. Um, The one thing about it, though, so I liked it. I thought it was really good, but I can see why... These comics can be extremely off-putting to people who are just entering the comic world or people who are coming back in like me. Um, I would say that I would never have picked this up. I would never have spent any money on these comic books because there's too much I don't know and I can't be that involved in characters that I don't know that much about. There's a lot of subtext going on here that I'm just not getting, you know? I can go to Wikipedia and read about Jean Grey, but it doesn't really help me to feel what's going on or to understand what the conflict is in the story. You know, I I know about... um, Rasputin. I read it in Wikipedia, but it doesn't really help me understand the significance of what happens with him in this story. Um, And I also have to say that the pacing to me in places feels really, really slow. And I get to the end of it, and I'm like, could you just wrap this up, please, and stop dropping all these cryptic hints? I just want to find out what happens. And I don't want to have to buy 27 more comic books to find out what happens. And I know that even when I buy those 27 more comic books, it's still not going to be wrapped up. There's still going to be stuff that's unresolved because there have to be hints left for whatever story comes out. And, and that irks me in a way that you can't just have a self-contained story where stuff happens and it gets explained and it gets resolved. That's why I like to read these kinds of superhero comic books. I can totally accept that when it comes to something like Love and Rockets, one of my other favorite series, which you have to have a lot of background too, but I don't expect those stories to be wrapped up. And I've made that commitment. Um, And I'm just not going to make that commitment to something like astonishing X-Men. The one thing that I will say, my one big complaint after reading all these, I will tell you, I am extremely tired of looking at Emma Frost's tits. Really, really tired of looking at her tits because they're pretty much in every shot that she appears in. Even when the rest of her is fully clothed, there they are, kind of bobbing up under her chin, hovering around her collarbone. And that got tired to me really pretty darn fast. So that is my take, Um, coming back to reading superhero comic books after a long time. I'm kind of hoping that somebody will explain to me what's going on, or somebody will lend me, or maybe the library will have the finish of this run so I can at least find out what happens, because I'd like to know what happens. It ended on a pretty good cliffhanger there, but I'm not going to buy them. It's just not worth my money to invest in something like that when um, you know, I could be spending my money on Chronicles of Conan, for example. two more short things and these are both indie things that i wanted to mention because hey i got them from the library and i was so happy that they had them one of them is called carnet de voyage and it's by craig thompson who has done lots of different comics this was the first thing that i picked up by him that was like a real world kind of thing and it's a travel diary that he did when he was going through europe and morocco excuse me europe and morocco last year in 2004 And it's really nice in the way that travel diaries are interesting for people who haven't been to places, or even if it's to a place where you have been and you can recognize it and say, oh yeah, I was there, I remember that, and compare somebody's experience to your own. So I thought that this was a, a neat and nifty little book. It's in black and white, and it really is his travel diary, and... It's pictures of places that he's been, it's people that he met along the way, old friends that he was reunited with, some romance that happens, and also a lot of homesickness, some physical problems that he was having. And all of those things reminded me of times when I've been traveling for fairly long periods and how it's just different when you're traveling. And I think he does a really good job of capturing what it's like to be in places where nobody speaks your language and you're trying to make yourself understood or you really don't understand the rules of what are going on around you, the social rules, and how important it is when good things do happen. It just puts it in a completely different light. And his art is really good. Um, it's, it's realistic when he's drawing landscapes. They're really beautiful, even though, again, it's just in black and white. Um, and then his pictures of people are really realistic, but they also bring out... Each individual's personality, you can really see a lot of personality in it. I also liked it because there's a lot of kids in here. A lot of the people that he was staying with um, had little kids, and they appear often in here, sometimes being good little kids and sometimes being really bad little kids. You don't really often see them in comic books, and it's interesting to see them drawn the way kids actually are, both the good and the bad. And uh, there's all all kinds of stuff. I'm just flipping through it right now. There's scenery and there's food and there's drink and there's music and all kinds of stuff. So I I can recommend this book for um, kind of armchair traveler. I thought it was a really interesting thing. He said he had some reservations about publishing it, but I'm really glad that um, he put it out and top shelf decided to publish it because it's definitely worth reading. And then the last thing on my list of things to read was something else that I got from the library. And I, I want to um, give this a good review, but then complain a little bit about something that I see happening more often than not. So the book that I'm holding is called The Summer of Love, and it's by Debbie Drechler. And it's a girl coming of age story. And I'm not sure if it's supposed to be autobiographical, um I kind of don't think it's completely autobiographical. It's it's a story. And Debbie Drexler has done an awful lot of art. She's done stuff in Drawn and Quarterly, and um, she's done a lot of, I'll say, mainstream or mainstream publications. So, you know, US News and World Report, and stuff in Hotwired, and, you know, Conde Nast Traveler, things like that. So, um, this particular story is about a family that moves to a new town, and there are two teenage daughters. And it's what happens is they try to integrate themselves into the town. And there's good stuff and there's bad stuff. And the good stuff and the bad stuff for the two teenagers centers around uh, boys, of course, because that's the thing that happens when you move to a new town. You start thinking about, you know, whether you're going to meet some boys and if they're going to be nice to you and things like that. So I'm trying to think of, of how I wanted to phrase this without giving away everything that happens in this story because if if you want to read it, I, I don't want to give it away. There's some interesting stuff in here um, that should be left as a as a spoiler. <laughs> so what seems to happen in this book, and I I've seen this in a number of books that are written by women and are a girl coming of age stories, is that there's a girl, a teenager who's just starting to Become who she's going to be, and she trusts the boy, and the boy betrays her. And it's usually in a sexual way, either by raping her, or molesting her, or not doing any of those things, but telling lies about her that are sexual, like, you know, she's a slut, or she got pregnant, or she had an abortion, or all those kinds of things. Um, And I've seen it in like three or four different books that I've read, and while It's true. I know it's true because I've seen it. You know, I grew up with it. I was a girl and um, really bad things didn't happen to me, but I saw them happen to other girls, you know, for no reason, really. um, Other than that, some boy had decided that they were going to pick on her because, you know, she wouldn't put out or they just felt like humiliating her. Um, It's really depressing. (laughs) Reading these books is really, really depressing. And the reason that they depress me is because they are real life. And I I know I see the need for that. You know, the story has to be told. It has to be put out there so that people can recognize, yeah, this happens. But at some point, when I'm reading a story like this, I want the girl to to take control of the situation. And, you know, if the boy is raping her instead of laying back and letting it happen, that she kicks him in the balls or she punches him in the nose. Or, you know, if that's not going to happen, he rapes her and she immediately gets up and runs to a police station. And that never happens in these books because, you know, gee, most of the time it doesn't happen in real life. So on one hand, I totally respect the fact that the story needs to be told as truth because this is what happens. On the other hand, I think there's a place for stories that that treat these subjects, these realistic subjects, in a way that girls could read it and say, wow, I could do something about it. I don't have to take this shit. I don't have to live this life and have all this shit dumped on me just because I'm a girl and everything has to be about sex when you're a girl and you're a teenager. And I haven't seen books like that. If there were books out there like that and you know about it, oh, please tell me about it because I would love to see it. I would love to see a story in a comic where a girl takes control of the situation and doesn't allow these things to happen, doesn't allow herself to be the victim. And, you know, when you're 16 or 15 or 14, it's so hard to do that. So I I know that that's a pipe dream or a pie in the sky dream to say, yeah, when you're 14 years old, you shouldn't let boys dump shit on you because you won't put out. Like that's going to happen, right? Um, But it would be nice if maybe girls could read stories like that and feel like maybe there's a chance that things could turn out differently. And it doesn't always have to be the same every single time. You know, this story is supposed to take place I think in the early 80s. And some of the other books that I've read that have the same theme to them are completely contemporary. So, you know, do things change? No, not really. Um, So that's what I want to say about Summer of Love and stories like this. And I do think this is a good book. I like the art in it. um, And I like the fact that it's all about girls. But The boys just make me really, really angry because, you know, they have all the power, especially when you're teenagers and girls can't really do very much about it, really. So that was my quick list of things. Let's take a little break and then I got one more thing to come back and talk about. As with all things, I see everything so much later than the rest of you do, and what I watched tonight was Spider-Man 2, and this is because um, my geek friend Logan, who I just love to death, he's just so wonderful, I'm so glad I work with him, loaned me the DVD that came out, the special widescreen edition DVD, so that I could watch it when I was on vacation, and I watched it tonight. In fact, I watched the movie, and then I watched all the extras, because I'm a geek, and did you know that the making of documentary is actually longer than the movie? Isn't that amazing? And I watched it all, every minute of it it's a great movie. I was really, really pleased. I wasn't sure what to expect. Um, I thought the performances were all really good. The direction was typical Sam Raimi. I'm a huge Sam Sam Raimi fan, and I have been since the earliest days of Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2, and just about everything he's done since then. Dark Man. I love Dark Man. What a great movie Dark Man is. And it was what a comic book movie should be, I think. It had Lots and lots of references, including some frame by frame references to specific panels of Spider Man. And it had really good characterizations and it moved right along and it had really nice quiet spots that balanced the action sequences. So, all in all, I just thought it was terrific. Um, some things in particular that I noticed that I don't think I really noticed in Sam Raimi movies before, but maybe I should start paying attention to it. I love the fact that he casts people who are not beautiful. Even Kirsten Dunst is not beautiful in the classic sense of like a Bond supermodel kind of girl. You know, she's a a wonderful looking woman. She doesn't look like a model. You know, she has great features. She's a good actor. But she doesn't look like a model and she doesn't have big fake tits either. Um, All of the other people in this movie are really interesting looking. They look like real people. And I love that. It's so refreshing to not see everybody who looks like cookie cutter. And I have to say, as much as I like the Fantastic Four movie, Jessica Alba, like, whatever. she just I couldn't tell her apart from six other actresses if you lined them up in a police lineup. She looks like everybody else. Kirsten Dunst does not look like everybody else. The um, actress who played Ursula, the little Russian girl who lived across the hall, she was great. The woman who played Betty Brant, she was great. I'm sorry I don't have their names handy. I could open up IMDb and look it up. But they all look like people. They don't look like models. And that was great. Um... All of the people who are familiar to Sam Raimi fans, like Bruce Campbell, who has a, his usual cameo in there, it's just wonderful to see them. Even seeing the Delta Olds 88 in there was just a hoot and a holler. That was great. Um, the special effects were really good. You know, you can tell when they're using CGI, but you kind of have to go with that. Um, I, I appreciate the fact that they were able to explore deeper things that go on with Peter Parker the fact that he has this huge conflict about what he should do and uh, you know, a lot of people, um, I was browsing around online and seeing what other folks had to say about it after I'd watched it, talking about how him kind of losing his powers seemed unbelievable because he didn't really believe in them. But, you know, I can buy that. That that would kind of make sense, especially the way his powers were portrayed in it, that you really have to believe in yourself. Um, it was kind of funny towards the end, and I have to wonder if this is just Sam being funny, where, you know, it seems like everybody in New York now knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man because he just keeps whipping off his mask at every opportunity. Very amusing. Um, I also wanted to put in a plug for my friend Catherine from Philly's fanfic that she wrote around the um, subway scene or the elevated subway scene in this movie because it is a wonderful, wonderful little story. And I'm going to put up a link to it. So if you haven't read it, I strongly encourage you to go over and read it because she's a wonderful writer. And um, as I've said on my other show, the um, Look at His Butt show about Star Trek, there is good fan fiction out there. A lot of people automatically hear fan fiction and think, oh my god, it's the worst kind of crap. Somebody's thinking that they can write their fantasies about characters. And you know what? Like Sturgeon's Law, 90% of it is crap. But when you find something good, it is really, really good. And Catherine from Philly's Story is really, really good. Just about the only thing I didn't like about this movie is James Franco, who really can't act. But you know, that's okay. I can live with that. And For me, he will always be Daniel Desario from Freaks and Geeks. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. But if there has to be one person in a movie who looks good and can't act, I would take him over, you know, some blonde bimbo any day. That would just be fine with me. I I wanted to also say that this edition, the two-disc DVD, is great. It's really good. It has about a bazillion extras on it. Um, It's a widescreen edition, too, which looks really, really good letterboxed. I thoroughly enjoyed it. The sound is great. There are just so many extras, it'll take you a long, long time to get through them. One of the things that I really liked about the extras is that they have quite a bit of filmed interview with Stan Lee and John Romita talking about the comic book. And talking about it in a way that is really appropriate to the subject matter, but also really makes a comic book fan happy. And they refer to specific issues and the... There's a lot of um, artwork shown, and in fact, there's a really great scene of Ramita flipping through issue number 50, and you can see that the issue that he's holding is a real issue that was published back then, because it's all yellowed around the edges, and he's kind of holding it carefully and pointing to different panels, and it's you know, the one where Spider-Man decides to give up being Spider-Man, and there's that iconic shot of the... Uh, costume in the trash can, and it's really wonderful to just see him talking about it. And I love to hear Stanley talk about stuff. I mean, he is so over the top. You have to laugh, and you can see he's laughing at himself as well. And he talks about how he would have been the perfect guy to play J. Jonah Jameson and... Uh, you know, then admitting that the actor in the movie could actually be doing a better job than he could have. And talking about his proudest moments when I wrote this and when I wrote that, it's just wonderful. And also to see, again, um, the original art that Romita did back then and how great the characters looked, how incredibly comic booky they were, but the beauty of that at the same time. And they spent quite a lot of time talking about the introduction of Mary Jane, and they show that panel where you see her for the first time. And Boy, they're totally right when they say she is just a knockout. He had a way of drawing girls at that time that was just great. So um, if you're a fan of the movie, I can definitely recommend buying this DVD set if you want to have something to keep and hang on to. I haven't heard too much about Spider-Man 3, except I did see a picture of Thomas Hayden Church dress up like Sandman. And wow, he looked just like Sandman. That was pretty cool. I love Thomas Hayden Church. I've loved him ever since he was on Flying Blind and played Jonathan, tay Leone's boyfriend. He was great. Um, so I wanted to, to close this out kind of full circle, coming back to what I was saying at the very beginning of the show about how monkeys are still monkeys. Um, as I said, I was browsing around the internet looking for um, other comments that people had about Spider-Man because I just wanted to see what people thought and if I was missing anything and if there were any in-jokes that I wasn't getting. I think I pretty much got them all. Um, And I found just the exact thing that Gerard Jones was talking about when he talked about fifth graders with a collegiate vocabulary. I'm going to read this whole thing because it cracked me up, so I hope I can get through it without kind of losing it. But I think you will find this highly amusing. So this is from some site where people post their criticisms. And I I think this must have been posted just when the movie was released, which was in 2004. So um, ratings are from one to 10. And this is uh, Pat C who gave it a five. And I'm assuming that Pat C is a man or a boy, probably a boy. This is what he has to say. This movie went too far in appealing to the masses. It really is a great movie, perhaps the best movie ever made about a comic book hero, and probably deserves a 10 in the slick production department. Well-lit, definitive characters, engaging plot, and has something for everyone. I especially enjoyed the observation that reciting T.S. Eliot to chicks turns them on, although the average bloke has no idea what such poetry means. And Spider-Man's empathy for the predicament of his nemesis, Dr. Octopus, was touching and relevant. It has been a long time since I watched a movie I wanted to like. Here it comes. But, as in Superman, Hollywood malignant narcissism remains irrepressibly irrepressibly virulent. The film deftly corrects any lingering childhood impression that a comic book hero can forego a romantic relationship for a selfless love of mankind. In the end, Dunt's character becomes suitably empowered to assert her feminine priorities and subvert Spider-Man's quest to suppress his attraction to her for the greater good. Once again, Eve offers Adam the apple, Adam takes a juicy bite, and another of a diminishing list of individualistic childhood heroes is tidily dispatched. Right up to the end, this movie was on track to become the Casablanca of our generation. But the folks who made this movie don't understand T.S. Eliot either. They are Eliot's hollow men, headpieces filled with straw and leading the world to a whimpering end. Thanks, a bunch. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's just too funny. Okay, so anyway, you know what? You guys who are listening, don't do that. It's just too funny, and you can't help making fun of it. Oh, they don't understand T.S. Eliot. Because you do! You really understand T.S. Eliot. You are so in tune with that guy. It's just amazing. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to say one other thing, and I know this is going to border on heresy for everybody out there, but screw it. I always hated Gwen Stacy. She was so boring. Jesus, who wouldn't prefer Mary Jane over Gwen Stacy? Yeah, yeah, I know. Peter's first love and all that. But when Gwen Stacy died, I was glad. You can all hate me for that now. So with that little bit of, of snarkiness and nastiness, I'm going to close this out until next time when we will have more new things to talk about and more rants And um, in the meantime, tell me what you think.